This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Hi, this is Mick Reed, CEO and founder of Clippin. And what I love about content is I get to see the world through other people's eyes. Great video or film content requires amazing footage. But if your creativity and imagination is limited to the scope of what your budget will allow you to capture, or the places you could travel to do so, the possibilities of content are not boundless. That's where robust stock footage libraries come in, and platforms like Clippin play an important role in video curation and stock footage monetization. Coming up, you'll hear from Mick Reed, the founder and CEO of Clippin, who gives a kind of masterclass into the world and possible futures of stock footage curation and possibilities. Plus, a musical treat. From New York City, you're listening to Content Is Your Business, conversations with industry leaders and influencers covering the strategy and innovation of brand storytelling. Mick, welcome to the show. We're, we're so happy to have you in studio. Thanks so much. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, kudos to Mick, by the way. He was he was a, a, a last-minute invite, and we're very fortunate he had a little time today. Uh, so so double thanks uh, for, for filling in at the very last second. Uh, also joining me on mic is uh, one of our regulars, uh, Natasha Tolleton-Brown, uh, who, uh, full disclosure, is the COO of Mick's company, Clippin, um, and our, our kind of connection – to Mick. So, Natasha, hi. Hi. Fantastic uh, to be here and so glad to finally get Mick in front of a microphone. Yeah, definitely. I thought I, <laughs> thought I recognized you. <laughs> now I know why. And the other voice on the mic here is Rob Sanchez, uh, my colleague and also the CEO of Mouth Media Network. And we thought it'd be great to have you join in uh, for this conversation. Too. Yeah, I'm Rob. looking forward to it. All right. So, let's, let's start here, uh, Mick. I'd like to start with this question and that is, uh, we'll find out a little bit more and unpack what Clippin is and why it exists and so forth. But how do you see Clippin's purpose in the world of content from the time that you imagined it to what it has become now? How has that changed, if at all? So why don't I start by just saying kind of why we why we did start Clippin? Okay. And ahead. it's um, what Clippin does is we're in the stock footage business. And we're kind of a middleman in that business. You have um, the distributors like Getty Images, Shutterstock, Adobe, and about maybe half a dozen that are actual the real players in the global market of uh, stock footage. And we realize that there's a huge demand for stock footage for all the reasons I'm sure you know, but growing demand for video, stock footage is a huge part of it. If somebody wants a shot of the Brooklyn Bridge, they're either going to shoot it themselves, they're going to send somebody to shoot it, or they're going to go on one of these distributors and buy it. It's it's real easy for the amateur video maker or filmmaker to make their stuff look fantastic with some great stock footage. And that's the opportunity, exactly. So you have this growing demand on one side, and then you have this growing supply 
on the other side. But what we realize is that it's really a lot of work and kind of a nightmare to get your raw footage, unedited footage, to sale on these sites. And it's the work that somebody who loves to shoot typically will shoot for an hour. Then they'll have 10 hours worth of work ahead of them to get it to the distributors. And it's very specialized. It's not editing, it's clipping. You need a bit of difference. And so they're couple, uh, you know, sets of really unique skills. They're very specialized um, that determine whether your stuff gets accepted, but is found and sells or not. So it's probably the most important part. And it's the part that nobody really wants to do. And no, no one really does that well. So that was the opportunity. And that hasn't changed at all. In fact, the need for it has only grown as the demand has grown for what our business plan is. And that's one of the remarkable things from the first conception of Clippin that the basic business model hasn't changed at all. All the details of how we've been managing that have changed significantly. What are the kinds of clients that you have? How far does this reach? Is this uh, everyone from your your local neighborhood filmmaker to your you know big budget networks using stock footage? And 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 if it is that kind of range, how how do you have the same kind of working relationships with both ends of that spectrum or yeah we do and you know one side of the equation is a lot simpler than the other side you know we have supply and then we have demand on the demand side it's the agencies it's the the distributors who actually handle that they're the experts in how to sell this stuff i don't know how to price a stock footage clip you know whether it's um a subscription model or a premium model or how to price 4k versus hd this is what they do and so the whole idea is that we're partnering with the distributors a short short list you know a small number of distributors who are the best at what they do and they can get the stuff out there they can get it sold so that's the easiest part of the equation partnering with one of them on the supply side you're right it's anybody with a camera it's anybody who can go out and shoot is anybody who wants to make some extra income from shooting video and also someone who's open to the idea of getting a little bit of training, getting feedback, improving what they're doing and really um, sustaining it over the course of, uh, you know, let's say 12 months or something like that, as opposed to someone with, you know, fairly unrealistic expectations, like they see a, a clip for $3,000 on Getty and they think, I only have to shoot one clip a month and then I'll make such and such. You know, it doesn't work that way. So we want the people with, who love to shoot, people with the right equipment, and also people who have the right expectations. When you're, when that person is submitting, um, does the um, amount and volume of work that they're submitting matter or is it the type of work? How does somebody actually go about building a revenue stream um, on the supply side? So it really is a numbers game. It's not a matter of shooting one clip and sending one clip up and then, you know, waiting for it to sell. It just doesn't work that way. So we have a system where we, it's called quantity, quality, and variety. And we show these shooters, these contributors, how to play the numbers, which mm -hmm. takes all that pressure off having to shoot something today that is going to sell. You know, forget about that. Shoot what you love. And then you go out and... Think of a story, apple picking, hiking, Red Rock Canyon, mm -hmm. surfing, whatever, whatever you want to shoot, whatever's available to you, whatever sparks that, um, that creativity in you go out, shoot it. And then use certain best practices, you know, coverage, wides, mediums, and tights, different angles, different things happening, you know, throughout what this story or event is. 
And just kind of naturally through the course of what you're shooting, you may come up with 50 or so clips, and then a certain percentage of those will actually be edited, tagged, and then distributed for stock footage. But that's how we get the numbers up. And then keep shooting. Mm-hmm. And like I say, oh, you know, over a period of, you know, six to 12 months, that's when you really start seeing um, results. Now, are you seeing people do this as the primary purpose of shooting or is it like a side effect of other projects? So the contributors can be broken down in a few different categories. Um, there are sh- people out there who love to shoot stock footage. They know that there's an opportunity to make money and they want to go out and shoot and they need help to do that. They need a system to do that. And that's what we give to them. Then there are the professional, maybe semi-pro shooters who might be videographers, let's say news stringers. They're out there shooting stuff. They know how to shoot. And when they have a day off, when they have a few hours, you know, why not just grab something, send it up to Clip and see how it does. Um, then there are people who are sitting on tons of footage. And that can be a person, maybe a documentary filmmaker, you know, 100 to 1 ratio. I saw a documentary a couple of weeks ago. Um, the the uh, director shot 2,500 hours worth of um, footage. It's actually a documentary called Dig. Um, about um, the Dandy Warhols and the um, Brian Jonestown Massacre. 2,500 hours. I mean, picture what that shelf looks like with the mini DVs. Yeah. Um, you know, to, for, for a, a one hour and 45 minute um, cut down. So there are a lot of people out there who have, are sitting on a ton of footage. And this could also be, you know, the major media producers who we work with as well. So that's more an opportunity of they have stuff that's just sitting there on hard drives. And it may even have a negative value because they don't know what it is. Um, you know, send it to Clippin and, um, kind of, what do you have to lose? It's kind of gravy. Mm-hmm. Are you processing it in such a way that that filmmaker can basically have a catalog of his work and choose to put some up and some not, um, and basically use you as an archive tool at the same time? So we're not really a, um, a ma'am for them, a, you know, media asset management, um, system or a damn digital asset manager. Um, it's really specific to stock footage. What we do give them is access to all their clips. Say, you know, when they send us the raw footage, we edit them, we clip them up, we tag them. And then when they're published to the distributors, they can actually see um, their clips through the dashboard. It's one of the most exciting parts for them because they want to see, you know, where are my clips? And then the next question is, you know, when am I going to make a sale? Where's my money? Right. Yeah. You know, just not, this is natural. They, that's why they're in this. So we do give them access um, to see their clips. Um, but we also position ourselves as the experts in this. That's part of the whole, um, you know, reason for, for clipping being, being around that we are the experts in this and we have certain standards, um, that we use that are, you know, our very human editors and taggers use to determine whether that shot might have value or not. And it doesn't, you have to throw the, the, the idea of, you know, production value out the window. I mean, I come from an um, independent film world and an ad agency world, and especially in the agencies, it's production value, production value. You can't think like that anymore because it's the buyer who tells you what the value is. And we've had these shots where not really shot well, but somebody buys them because they're looking for that, you know, that certain something because they're dropping that clip 
in a hole on their timeline and there's a shot before it, there's a shot after it, there's the content, there's the color, there's the movement, maybe you have music underneath, maybe you have a voiceover. You know, there's something that the editor, producer, they're the buyers who are looking for and when they see it, they're searching for it, you know, based on keywords. So that's why keywords are really important. But when they see that shot, that then they say, this is a shot I want. They drop it in the cut, see if it works. If it works, you know, that's the, that's the final sale. In terms of the actual videographers being editors, can you, I'm fascinated by this. Can you just describe a little bit or your thoughts on why they, they don't make the best editors? And I, I've seen this in the photography industry for years and years and years. The actual photographers are not the best people to edit their work. So let's say a videographer had all the time in the world and motivation. Would the output be the same? Would they make the same choices as the professional editors or is it considerably different? Do you have to put on a different hat yeah, when so you go into edit mode? You're right. I mean, Clippin Clip has grown kind of organically from my experience in, in the business from, you know, from my first day on a set dragging sandbags around. You know, that's in Clippin somewhere. And when I was an editor in post-production, when I was a producer – when I did, you know, high-end commercials, when I did corporate and e-learning, you know, all these, all these things are in clip in one way or another. So how, it, how do you mean that? What do you mean that they're in clip? Well, the lessons that I've learned and kind of, um, there's a producer named, um, Ted Hope who was, you know, like a God to me in, in, in the nineties. He was, he was the, you know, the producer in New York who was doing all the independent, films and he wrote a kind of a bible for production assistants and um it was all about efficiency most of it was about efficiency that's how i read it anyway and it would say things like you know if you move a c-stand just move it once so think about where you're going to put it because you move it twice now we're running into overtime and we don't get the shot you know like really breaking it down to that level of detail so in order to do what we do, a clip-in, it has to be ultra, ultra efficient. I actually learned this lesson even before, you know, um, I was in the film business. When I was in college, I ran a house painting company. My own house painting company is called Worldwide um, Painting Painters. And the idea was it will paint your house for the price of one-way ticket or round-trip ticket to Europe. And it actually worked. So I did that for That's a couple That's pretty summers. clever, actually. I love that. <laughs> I did that for a couple summers. And I didn't really know anything about painting. I mean, you, yeah. you know, painting's actually, you know, it's not about painting. It's about the prep. I found yeah. out later because towards the end of my, I think the summer before my senior year, um, I was recruited by this company that was, I can't, I'm trying to, College Painters, I think it was called. Yeah. And um, College Pro is the name of it. And they actually trained me. And one of the things they said was, when you put the ladder up on the side of the house and you go up the ladder, bring everything with you. Because if you keep going up and down the ladder, there goes your profit, right? So it's just, it's efficiency. And, you know, I think I'm kind of inclined to that type of efficiency just naturally. And so throughout my, you know, production, post-production career, I just saw ways for efficiency. And it's really kind of started for purely selfish reasons. As an editor, I love to edit. I mean, I love, you know, they say, do what you love, right? And and how do you define that? And one test is, if you lose track of time, 
Oh, yeah. Completely lose track of time. Six hours go by or whatever, yeah. and you look up, and you're like, that's a pretty good That's so true. Gauge. Editing, I can't tell you how many 4 a.m. I've looked up at the clock and go, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I love that about editing. So I, I must love editing, right? But what I, what I don't like is you know the media management and finding that thing and converting that whatever and like yeah. and that drags down all my energy all my creativity um you know i want to put that creativity into the stuff that i like to do so my solutions for that have been to find opportunities for um you know for improvements in the efficiency i think of it as removing the, the friction points and to you know to quote jeff bezos if when you remove friction you boost volume Right. So that lends itself really well to clip. And again, that's when I say clipping came out of, came out of this. And a lot of the lessons I learned, um, before clipping are in clipping. Mm-hmm. I brought all that to clipping. And it's really about, you know, we, we have videographers out there who love to shoot. I want them to do more of what they love. I don't want them to get bogged down, even uploading to us. So we've thought through every single detail, but then, Internally with Clippin, we have, this is not all AI and robots and stuff like that. No, we have human editors who are more like, think of them as more like um, superhuman B-roll editors, you know, can see things three times speed and they just immediately, by the time they re- they they think, is this a good shot or a bad shot? Can I use it or not? You know, there's an in and out point already and they've done, you know, most of the work. So, and then the taggers too, the person who's writing the title description and, you know, the 46 keywords and stuff like that. You know, we want them to do what they love. They're experts in this. They're doing that for a reason because that's their zone. So we don't want them bogged down in all, you know, these friction points. So that's what we've been obsessed with. For your customer of the footage, the buyer, they um, probably the thing that's going to lead to the most efficiency on their end is not just the purchasing process, but the finding of footage process. That's the big friction. So those keywords are very, very important that they're accurate. So my question is, you've got your AI in there and you've got your, your, your taggers, but there's going to be information about that footage sometimes that the taggers is not going to know. Like it would be, it, it may not be evident to them this was shot in Woodstock, but if someone knew it was shot in Woodstock, uh, the place, not the event, it would help it might have been very useful for them to know that. How do you take those specific pieces of information that could mean the difference for one filmmaker of even knowing that footage applied to them and allow with, without creating friction in the providing you the footage process? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's a great question. It's something I spent a long time thinking about and a long time trying to solve. Um, and I'm going to come up. I'm going to answer moment. Natasha's question right about, about this. About <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Hey, there's that's still that <laughs> question. I'm going to loop back. I'm going to loop back. <laughs> um, so you're a shooter, right? You've just shot, you've gone hiking up in Woodstock um, this weekend, and you're really excited about your footage. And so we want to make that as easy as possible for you to send that to us. So what we've done is we spent a long time coming up with a simple solution to a very complex problem and one that helps us throughout the whole process and, you know, the assembly line of it, of, of your footage. So on the clip and dashboard, there's a big green button that says upload. You click that and it's a three-step upload wizard. First step, your video files, drag and drop your video files or navigate down to wherever they are in your hard drive. 
Click your select your video files. Next step, do you have a release? You know, model or property release. And that's basically that just lets you use it for a commercial usage. In other words, if you have if you have somebody in that shot up in Woodstock, you don't have a release. It could still be editorial use, but you can't sell it in a Coca-Cola spot, right? You get a release, it just increases um, the end, the, you know, the end users and, and the price. Is that the same for like every logo in it and all that stuff? Do you have to pay? Yeah, there are a lot the of rules. So there are a lot of yeah. rules and we, we have basic training for this, but it's about a 10 minute video, but then we reinforce this throughout. So we'll give, eventually give you feedback, you know, positive and constructive if we need to give you constructive feedback. So third step, to, uh, three of three of the upload wizard is exactly what you say. Just tell us enough so we know what we're looking at. So it's title, hiking in Woodstock, description, hike, people hiking Woodstock, downtown Woodstock, the village, coffee shop, whatever. The guy with that crazy rickshaw who goes around after he's still there, whatever. Um, <laughs> and, you know, date shot, um, location, United States, Woodstock, New York, and then anything else you want to tell us. And that could be something really specific about, you know, one shot or don't use this footage or something like that. But it could also be there's a psychological element to this as well. Whether you're a professional shooter or, you know, a weekend warrior, um, you know, these are, this is your footage and we respect that. And we, you know, and um, you have that relationship with your footage and there's a certain amount of vulnerability to send it to people who you don't know, right? And, you know, we're going to do something where we're going to select it you know, uh, decide whether it's going to be distributed or not. Okay. So a lot of people, um, say, Hey, sorry. Um, it's the, some of the clips are a little jittery. It was windy. I didn't have a tripod, whatever. Anyway, they just, what would you say? What would you tell an editor when you're handing off your card, your camera card to them? What would you tell them? So we give them a field for that. This typically takes under a minute, like for you to fill out this information, then press upload, and then you can go back and upload another package. Mm -hmm. So that information, which is the source metadata, which is really just basic, that's all we need to do all the tagging, as well as, of course, looking at the footage, too. So our whole platform has been designed to bring that footage throughout for the editors and the taggers, so they always know what they're looking at um, while they're editing and tagging. It gives them context. And... If I can uh, circle back to uh, Natasha's question, so the question is, you know, can that can that shooter, um, well, you know, why? I guess it was kind of why are they not as good, or, or could they be as good? The actual uh, for for editing their own content, and the actual process of editing is really simple. I mean, we can teach that to anybody. Load it into a nonlinear editor, and there are plenty out there, free and you know, cheap, um, and mark an in point and an out point, and export it. Like it's a really doesn't take that much but there's a curation right you're also working in a vacuum you there's a lot of doubt because this isn't something you do all all the time and you're also looking at it through a completely you know from a completely different angle um not as an expert of somebody who actually knows what has a higher chance of selling um or doesn't so i'll give you an example of these um this is a production company so it wasn't an individual but they had a ton of footage and they they thought um well why don't we monetize this through the stock footage market it's the b-roll you know it's a stock footage stuff so we're not taking away from any of our projects 
And they, you know, they had post-production suites, they had editors. So they thought, well, we have an editor. So it was literally like a commercial post-production scene where you had the editor at this big console, they're doing the editing, and you had two people on the client couch behind them discussing the shots. Oh, should we add another second? Should we not? It's not about that, you know? Your their 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 judgment is uh, is skewed at that point, and they're wasting a ton of time. So mm-hmm. we can do it ten, twenty times sure. faster. The quality is better, and the yield is better. Plus, and it's you time don't have to market. Any, you don't have emotion invested in it the way you were referring before. I mean, that's yeah. one of the big things, Natasha. Yeah. Of course, is you know I think there are a lot of great uh, filmmakers or directors who have edited their own stuff who do wonderful work, but there's always that risk that they're in love with their work and it's tough to make those tough editing choices yeah. and that's why having someone working with you who's impartial is so crucial or having someone editing also like a second tier or round editor to 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 point out those issues that you fall in love with those shots. Um, well, the inverse is also true because a lot of times you hate what you do and you yeah. may not think of the commercial exactly. viability. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, well, this is just crap uh-huh. and it That's turns true. out to be really – That's yeah. true. Yeah. That's it. And we want to give this footage a fair shot. It's, yeah. you know, that's what we say. Again, it's a short list of things you need to remember to shoot footage. You know, yeah. don't, don't talk under – while you're shooting, don't press the record button too, you know, too hard. Um, you know, have movement in the frame, yeah. you know, things wise, mediums, and size is really easy, but don't, don't forget that the editing part mm-hmm. is only half of it, right? It's then the tagging, mm-hmm. which, and if you're a visual person, title, description, keywords, and all a bunch of other metadata, and then the delivery, like editing is only part of it. So let's talk about, uh, before we get to your snack, which you oh. so kindly, <laughs> uh, brought for all of us to enjoy in just a moment. Uh, one, one more thought about this. I'm thinking about you because know, you kind of referenced this there's so many content studios out there there's so many brands that are producing content in-house there's so many ad agencies that have um you know incredible amounts of footage that they shoot many of them especially the newer content studios and brands who haven't really been around the block some executive in the brand said let's buy a bunch of equipment hire a producer boom we have a content studio without thinking about the aftermarket for footage that there could be, how are you thinking about education around the different types of industries that are using content to let them know about this secondary market for what they've produced as, as a revenue, uh, especially for the executives in a brand that are looking at the content studio as a burn instead of a resource, yeah. you know, but they've reluctantly put one in because someone convinced them maybe it'll be a better direction. And really there, there's a way to offset that cost with some of the, potentially with some of the footage that's shot. Well, How are you looking at the education? I like your pitch. So, you know, are you available for a global tour of all <laughs> sure. production Absolutely. companies? Absolutely. I mean, that's, let's that's do a it. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Now that's an idea. See, um, I mean, that's it. You know, the stock footage, let's face it, is the least sexy, you know, niche of a really big content business and even, even video. Not a whole lot of people, you know, the production companies and content creators say, I'm going to do this specifically for stock footage. Some people do, but most don't. Um, it's an opportunity from existing footage. So, um, what we're doing is, yeah, I mean, we're, we're spreading the word and kind of the only objection we've ever gotten is either, Hey, that's a great idea. Why can't I do that? This, 
myself. Mm-hmm. And either a they've tried and they've used the example of like you know paying real editors and to do it and stuff like that. Editors aren't experts in this. They're too, you know, they're too slow. Um, they don't have the the platform to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, efficiently. Look, the other thing too here is how, how are you looking at uh, even – okay, so I'm an ad agency and I'm I'm doing a, a commercial on a beach. And I could instruct my videographer in between takes, grab some beautiful beach shots. And then we have uh, stock footage of great you know waves and beach shots and stuff like that while I'm there as opposed to sitting there with the camera while they're changing the makeup on somebody. If if you if they were thinking about maximizing the use of the resources that they have to create these additional uh, revenue streams, hypothetically, um, you know, just just even thinking about that in the first place might activate them to do those things on purpose, especially when they're in really interesting locations. You know, you're shooting at the top of the Empire State Building huge opportunity to grab some amazing stock footage while you're up there. It's a huge opportunity. If you're already shooting stuff, yeah, just tack something on. And certainly after you're done with your job, if you have a ton of footage lying on your hard drive, you know, upload it and you can monetize that. Um, The, you know, the only, there are basically two objections, right? Okay. When people hear about this plan, one, why can't I do that myself? And they either have tried to do it and, realize it's too expensive and they're not they're not skilled to do this or they haven't and the reason they haven't is because they don't know what to do they don't know how to get started um the other um objection would be we have a ton of footage but we don't know where it is it's not lto tapes it's not catalog we don't have a mam because mams are kind of a big thing right now people are realizing we have more and more and more video footage but you know, it's on, they're on hard drives, they're on LTO tapes, they're all around. We don't have metadata. Um, maybe it's an Avid project or a Final Cut project. The man hours to even figure out what we got to give it yeah. to you with is yeah. So that's that's actually you know we have um, we have another aspect of our business which is kind of the enterprise business, which is for companies like that, and oh, they're, gotcha. they're big companies who are sitting on a you know vast archive which has negative value because they're paying to keep it stored and dupes and stuff like that, but they can't access it. And the opportunity is, well, somebody's looking for that footage and maybe within their own organization. And instead of just tapping into their own footage or coming up with ideas, how can we create more documentaries shows? How can we use our own library? Instead of that, they're buying it from the distributors themselves instead of kind of Think of this way as like sell, selling it back to the grid. Mm-hmm. So there are companies out there who do realize um, that there is value in doing kind of a cataloging process. And we always look at it, wh- what are the predefined mm-hmm. end uses? And a lot of times the conversation gets started because of stock footage. And then they realize, oh no, stock footage is only a small part of this opportunity. We can use it for so many other things. But while we're there, you know, while Clippin is there going through it, we can flag stuff for uh, you know for stock footage as well. Is all your footage without sound? No, actually, sound is really important. Like nat sound makes it a m- more valuable clip. Some some the distrib- natural sound, is nat yeah, natural sound, sound. yeah. Um, you know, shooting in a field and the sound of the rustling, you know. So do you offer sound whatever. effects, st- stock sound effects also that's pulled from the footage? So clipping is only for stock footage, meaning video. Okay. 
Yeah. And that someone could certainly, you know, buy video for the sound, mm-hmm. but we're not really shooting specifically for sound. Um, but it is important because, you know, for a variety of purposes, people might want to want that natural sound. Or if it's a cannon going off this, you know, the sound associated sound effect, as opposed to having to, you know, buy the sound right. effect somewhere else. So it's, it does add value to that clip. So far, we've been talking uh, more about professional shooters. I'm wondering about all the switch to like iPhone shot content and stuff like that, where you're still getting a, a decent quality in the video. Um, is, is there a, a marketplace for that sort of content right now as well? Or do you find that it needs to be shot with a really nice camera and um, like a more expensive setup? Well, you know, the word nice and quality, it's all relative. Yeah. So who is the end, end user? Who is that buyer? What are they looking for? And if they're looking for something that's shot on an iPhone with a certain resolution, because we know that I, you know, on the, on the latest iPhone, um, it's 4k, they say 4k. Well, what does that really mean? Right. It's this tiny little lens. Is there depth of field? There may be that number of, um, um, you know, pixels, but like, is it really as high quality as shooting on an Alexa, which is a really, really high end camera? And the answer is no. But for that end user, do they care about that stuff? And they're the ones who determine that. So certainly there's a huge opportunity for people to shoot on, you know, on a mobile phone. Um, I think the opportunities will increase when 5G comes out in the next year or so, mm-hmm. because it'll be easier to upload the uncompressed video from that phone. And there is a growing demand for it. Um, but right now, for um you know for for the system we have in place we really want um we want a lot of coverage when you go out and shoot it doesn't mean if you capture like an incredible shot on your phone you shouldn't send it up but just the way people shoot on phones you know you don't have the ability with the lenses wide mediums and tights mm-hmm. and with the depth of field typically so um we're, we're geared towards kind of non-mobile DSLRs, cinema cameras, but we certainly do accept mobile. And I think that will only grow over the next year or two. Okay. Thank you. We've been talking about capturing footage as one of the parts of our conversation. Right now, what I want to capture is a snack. <laughs> because, well, I brought something. Thank you. Just which is great. Which is great because, uh, you know, of course, many of our guests are kind enough to uh, bring with them a snack for all of us yeah. to share. It's a great way to break bread and get to know them a little bit. Uh, I see a little box sitting yeah. on the table there, and I'm curious what you've brought and, and why. So I usually walk around with about a dozen macarons, who just in case really? of emergency. <laughs> and <laughs> so an emergency? I haven't opened the box yet today. Oh. So. Um, there's a French, um, bakery near where I live in Connecticut called mm-hmm. Isabella Vincent. Wow. And you know how hard it is to get like a real baguette yeah. outside of France? Like it's impossible because it's the water and so, you know, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. No, you can get it there and they, they make delicious pastries. Oh my. So I was thinking, you know, for this time of day, a macaron might, uh, might be a good snack. So wow. that's much better than what you teased with at the beginning, which was gefilte fish and marmite. So, <laughs> <laughs> I like I like how you set the expectations. Like, you know, if you had said you know some some peppered steak or something, I would go well steak macaron. Okay, we're okay. But compared to the gefilte fish, I mean, <laughs> well, we haven't opened, we're we're we haven't opened the box yet. So. Well, let's, let's open the box and see, see what we got, my friend. What do we got here? So it's a looks like a tiny, tiny little donut box. <laughs> 
Oh, there you go. There you go. Oh, look. So my sister-in-law actually got me into macaron. I'd never had one because I was confusing with macaroon, mm-hmm. which I think is a that, lot of people do. I hope a lot of people do. Is macaron? Macaron. Is that the, more the pr- appropriate pronunciation or is that the plural of macaron? Macaron. Well, it's both. Oh. It's, it's both. Like Maca, M-A-C-A-R-O-N. Uh-huh. Not to be confused with the uh, um, you know, prime minister of France, Macron. Ah. He's missing. Missing. Uh, so these for... Uh, we don't have a visual. So they basically, these are the things that basically look like a miniature hamburger. Right. They're usually colored and they've got a little something in between. Yes. And they're probably one of the hardest pastries to actually bake because yeah. they've got this really, really um, thin, thin eggshell crust. Yeah, crust. Yeah, and so the humidity, like everything has to be perfect. So my sister-in-law um, who went to the Cordon Bleu to study um, pastry, um, to be a pastry chef, um, specifically for um, to make to make these macarons, um, that talk about ratio. It's like I, I don't know if it's like ten broken ones to one that actually survives the whole process. But I would have bags and bags of these broken macarons, tops and bottoms. Oh, in our house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like the, the broken cookie. Yeah, yeah. Tough Every now and then, out. you know, kind of <laughs> knock over a tray by accident. Oh, sorry. Well, I'll, I'll eat them. Don't worry. Yeah. So anyway, there we've got a few flavors here. We have lemon. We have mm-hmm. apricot on the bottom. We have coconut. And apricot. I think apricot. this apricot. one there was apricot. only a single strawberry left. Oh, wow. So I'm going to have to fight over that one. All right. Uh, well, <laughs> we're going to dive into one? that. Yeah, let's dive in and have have uh, have a great, uh, fun uh, experience here with some macaron. And, uh, macaron. Uh, macaron. And I'm just going to say that all day. I, I might eat one. <laughs> so before we break, uh, it, it's come to our attention, Mick, that you're a bit of a musician. Can you give us the uh, the thumbnail sketch of of what that means? Well, one of the okay, I I am a I'm a musician. I'm a singer songwriter, and one of the best compliments I've ever gotten about that is someone who was looking at Clippin. We were talking about Clippin for a very long time, and he you know Googled me or a track came up somewhere. He found out that I was a musician as well, and he got really worried. And he said, Mick, you know, I'm just really worried if this music thing takes off for you. Then what's going to happen? <laughs> Clipping. <laughs> so I'm still still waiting for that to happen. Yeah, but um, it's a good choice to have to make. Yeah, no, I've yeah. been I've been writing and uh, you know singing, performing for for a long time. Um, I, I recorded a duet with Madeline Peru. Wow. A while ago, wrote a, wrote a tune and she sang on it. That's great. Um, Loudon Wainwright um, sang one of my tunes. Um, but I play with some you know really really good musicians. Friends of mine are professional musicians. Um, Hugh Poole, uh-huh. New York, um, New York City, um, Blues Hall of Famer, um, John Eric Kelso, trumpeter, Dan Levinson. Um, and I just, I kind of hang around and, and play with some really, really good players who, who make my songs, uh, come to life. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much about film. I've always have been. I also like to write and music is probably the third leg of the stool. Well, uh, good news. Mick's given us some uh, permission to share uh, some of his great tunes as we go in and out of our breaks in this episode. So enjoy some music by Mick Reed. Yeah. All right. And uh, coming up, uh, you'll hear Mick share about how the work that he's doing with Clippin has 
had an impact on or is having an impact on content studios in general, as well as uh, some insights that he has on the trend of content now um, from his chair and his experience right after this. I'm the Teflon Pan Man. I'm the Teflon Pan Man. Ain't nothing gonna stick on me. Entrepreneurista. A woman who organizes and operates a business, taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. One who has a drive, passion, and vision with an undying determination to succeed. She is fiercely motivated, ambitious, and competitive, forging her own path to independence and success. That's an entrepreneurista. Through the conversations on the Entrepreneurista podcast, we want to celebrate failures, reflect on successes, and get unfiltered about what it takes to be your own boss. This is the Entrepreneurista podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have, with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done, and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram, with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurstapodcast.com. Hey, Mac, the uh, macaron, the, they, I'm sure I've exaggerated that, but they, they, were, they, they were worth exaggeration. They were, I had a lemon macaron that just was a little, a, a, a little burger of heaven to me, a little, a little, little mini confection <laughs> hamburger looking piece of heaven. So that was, that was, wow, some that's great why stuff. I brought them. That's, that's great. Right. Thank you Absolutely very much. Absolutely divine. Oh, my gosh. Yummy. So that actually is what you carry around all day, I'm sure. Yeah, in okay. case of emergency, you know, St. Bernard's have the, um, you know, the brandy or whatever. Yeah. I've got macaron. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, going back a little bit to content, I want to talk about the shifting landscape of um, video content that's being used right now. So there, there used to be a heavy reliance on a lot of editorial, a lot of in-depth, um, complex shoots when you're shooting for a brand or shooting for... Um, let's say it's like an editorial piece. And then there's been the shift towards more influencer content that's a lot rawer and, and rougher cut. Have you seen trends that are shaping the way that your business works? Have you seen anything that's um, different now than what it was a couple of years ago in the video space? And how are you thinking about responding? Absolutely. Um, there are the, the demand has changed um, over the last, you know, five years, especially, but even going back 10 years. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the influencer thing because, um, you know, as a film video producer, I'm used to a certain standard, right? Yep. And if you're going to do like a jump cut, it's for a reason. Well, you know, the YouTubers came in, all they cared about was getting their story out there. You know, many yep. of them were very creative editors, but they didn't have any rules. And so you take a look at some of them and they're talking to the camera and it's just jump, 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 you know, to get the, it's almost like the radio edit. And they don't really even care about covering it up. Um, then maybe they'll cut the B-roll and stuff like that. Um, handheld. 
They're not trained, but it works. So the only thing that really matters is does does it work? And so I think that what you've seen is people shooting a lot more different kinds of footage. You still have the traditional, you know, quote unquote, high end, highly produced, highly directed, and there is a demand for that. But just stylistically, I think, um, you know, in social social video, it's changed what people are um, accept. It's changed what um, people's tastes are, and uh, you know what the audience, the buyers, are actually looking for. Mm-hmm. And I guess with you know the technology just getting smaller and smaller and smaller, it's so much more accessible. You know, to your to your point about the upload wizard for clipping, it's three steps. There's a big green button. You know, go back five years, could the average person operate? you know, a really complicated DSLR and get all the white balances right, da, da, da. No, but the technology is now that you can turn it on and you're yeah. a producer all of a sudden. You know, ev- everyone seems to be becoming a producer, right? So yeah. where where do you go for the most accurate information on what trends are becoming or what trends will be? Who Who should you be looking at? I think it's really, really important. Yeah, it's really important to see, it's almost like with fashion, you know, you see trends and you see what's coming up and then you see kind of the street stuff. So I think it's really important to see how um, producers of content on social media, what they're doing, because eventually that's going to work its way into the mainstream, into the 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 types of projects that, that actually have budgets. A moment that really opened my eyes was a few years ago, and I'd already started clipping, and I already absolutely believed in what we were doing. Um, and I was having lunch. And I was in London with with a friend of mine in the fashion business. We were just catching up on what we'd been up to, and she asked about clipping, and I kind of refreshed her memory, the stock footage and um, things like that. And she said, oh, yeah, we, we actually use a lot of stock footage. And now I'd worked with you know, some of the leading brands in fashion and the demands that are associated with that. And I thought, and they would never in a million years say, use stock footage, you know, they'd shoot themselves. And I basically responded like that. Wow, that really surprises me. And she said, well, think about it. You know, we have to create more content. Mm-hmm. Budgets are coming down. And then the last thing she said made me really happy. She said, and, and the quality of stock footage keeps going up and up and up. Yeah. So back in the day, my older brother started a company called Media Liquid. Um, this was before photo editors existed and video editors existed online. And what they did was basically undercut major agencies for nonprofits by doing public service announcements crowdsourced using digital video. And it was unheard of. And actually they ended up, their code set became the base for Windows Media Player 8. And then that turned into a whole different company and so on. But it was the technology shift that they hopped on, which was that all of a sudden you had digital. And before you didn't. So you could get the same quality at a much lower price. And now that's just like accelerated so much faster. So it's interesting to see that that the technology might drive the adoption curve a little bit. Um, but there's a second trend there too, which which is interesting to me, which is that as it becomes easier to shoot higher quality, there also sometimes is that like run to the lower quality, if that makes sense. So yeah. if everybody can do it, you have to differentiate yourself. 
Do you see those counter trends at all? Yeah, and I think you make a really good point um, with technology driving what the content is because six years ago, how many people had drones? Yeah. Right? How hard was it to shoot an aerial shot? It was really hard. It was really expensive. Um, and now, pretty much every, you know, yeah. very, very common to get that shot. And as people had this new technology, they were doing new things with it. I've even used a drone. Yeah, I'm shooting uh, shooting on one side of a river. I send the drone to the other side of the river, just almost as a tripod shot to shoot towards you know, where I am. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be necessarily an aerial. So there's so many things you can do with that. Um, hyperlapse, which is time-lapse, but you're, the camera's moving through it. First time I saw that blew my mind. You know, that's only about five, six years old. So with new technology comes innovation. These are the people who basically have no rules or they they have a new toy and they're just pushing it and that slowly but surely works its way into okay what can we do with what can we do with this and i think another example is you know with 360 for example 360 is still kind of looking for an audience mm -hmm. and i think the first time i really saw 360 and had that aha moment was, you know, it must have been the New York Times or something like that. And I had, uh, you know, Google was mailing everybody the cardboard box that you fold around, you put your phone in, and you watch it, and then you could hear it, and you were in, you were kind of in another place, and you could look around. You couldn't walk through the space. Yeah. But I was, it was really, really cool. But all it was was, you know, 60 seconds of something. And then they kind of evolved that, and, you know, of course, other media organizations were doing the same thing. And then that kind of evolved into um, more more scripted um, stories or documentaries. And then the first time I saw it in a commercial was, it must have been like a car commercial. And it was video, it was 360 video, but you were inside a car. Mm -hmm. So you could look around and see the features. Yeah. And that's kind of how, you know, how things go. I think about a friend who's working on a VR company where – it's for people who are traveling and you're in Times Square and then you can literally teleport yourself to the next tourist destination yeah. without, and it shows up as a floating door on your phone and you click on the door and you step through and you're in the Natural History Museum. And it's basically like, how do you preview so that you don't make the wrong choice about what tourist trap to go to? That's there's, really interesting. There's so yeah. many applications for it, isn't there? I mean, there's, yeah. and there's true utility with the likes of VR and 360. Yeah, and but I, maybe they haven't quite bridged the gap between the well, types of video that is considered entertainment. Yeah. Well, you know, you think about really what AR is, one of the real uses of AR, and I guess VR in the end too, is to put you places that you otherwise can't uh, go at all or can't go yet or want to imagine yourself in especially when you think about retail, you know, the opportunity for AR to put you in specific environments. So I'm, I'm thinking about, and I know this is part of probably where you were going, the opportunity. Okay. So Rob and I had the chance to experience uh, AR, or I guess that was VR actually, VR for camping equipment. Yeah. And it put you in a campground and it's all animated, you know, it's all, but but what if stock footage was able to put you in a more realistic environment in that VR 
And because the stock footage is out there, so 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 what if stock footage starts to be shot with VR in mind, where you start capturing more 360 video and you you know and and uh, and the ability to gosh, I mean just. Yeah, it's an efficiency play, isn't it? It's an efficiency of time. It, 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 yeah. Back to your time, point about thinking ahead too, yeah. in terms of of what's where things are going and shooting for that. Well, efficiency yeah. of time and efficiency of space. So, yeah. in the camping equipment, what was interesting was that they they basically had run into this issue where they couldn't sell tents because to display a tent properly, no one buys it from the dimensions because they don't understand what it is. So, you literally couldn't sell the product unless you had acres mm-hmm. of open space and so they'd sell one tent only and none of their other inventory would move so they set aside 20 feet they built a campground inside of it and massively increased the amount they were selling because all of a sudden you knew what it was to stand up and you knew when mm-hmm. you'd break the tent if you stood up so you could really understand what you're getting into um i think that really takes a visionary to to make that leap you know, someone's working on the on the gear on the hardware side, but they don't know exactly what you know. Yeah. A lot of times, they don't know exactly what people are going to use it for, and it may change. So, for for that person who, however, they got there to say, okay, here's a here's a practical use of it or a commercial use of it. It really does take vision and determination, you know, to break through all the resistance, mm-hmm. you know, in an industry. But when you think about AR and VR, augmented reality and virtual reality, you also have to um, realize that it's relative, right? So when film was first invented, right? When film was first invented, I can't remember if it was Edison or the Lumiere brothers, you know, out of France, where they were going around the country showing people, d- demonstrating um, film. And they would get a, you know, a theater and they'd get the projector and they put the screen up and they'd sit people down and they would project um, one of the early films with these demos was a, strain, a, a train pulling into the station. <laughs> and there are reports of people screaming, running over each other, knocking chairs over to get out of the <laughs> way of the train. Right? Yeah. And, and why did they react that way? Because they'd never seen anything like it. It looked like a train coming towards them. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's easy to forget, you know, it's like air. Well, we breathe it all day and you kind of forget about it. Um, but it also with, with video, we're already kind of there. And when I was saying before, what I love about content is to be able to see the world through other people's eyes. Even, you know, even um, two-dimensional, you know, video um, serves that purpose. And I think there there's a long way to go with even that. What would need to happen or what would be the next steps in order to make this business, the stock footage business, VR compatible? So the the stock footage companies have already been dabbling in this for a couple of years. You know, people, they were saying, we were looking for 360, we're looking for 360. I think it was a proof of concept for them. You know, we're looking for 360 because there are 360 cameras and we think that people are going to start buying it. I don't think it can't really came from like high demand, but they wanted to be able to offer it so that, you know, to kind of test the demand. So they also wanted to see what's, you know, what the processing is like. And it's, it's kind of hard enough for 
um, you know, regular video. I've, I've described how, you know, the editing and the tagging and things like that. It's even more processing for 360 because the files are kind of these weird files and you need, um, you know, even more specialized software mm-hmm. to do it. Um, not insurmountable, but just an extra, you know, an extra hurdle for you. So I think they were testing how, how, how can we get it from people and also is, is there demand? And, um, I think it's still evolving because, you know, the commercial applications I've seen for 360 are usually like, you know, the example of a car commercial or in your case, a camping commercial. It's very specific. So you kind of have to produce that yourself. And then it's, you know, it's, it's 360. So, you know, but you have to control the experience from beginning to end, as opposed to somebody who is producing something in 360 or even more rare just regular video and then they drop in a 360 shot um, and it can be, you know, on the, on the top of Mount Everest or something like that. You know, it's still pretty rare and people are still figuring out what they're doing with it and that's going to evolve. And if there's increased demand, um, then there'll be increased production. And, and if there's not, it'll probably just fade away as far as, as far as stock footage anyway, which is again, very specific. I mean, how do you look at your role as a one of the leaders in in this particular space with stock footage, how do you look at your role to carve out that next opportunity? So, for example, if you build something, they will come. If you create a new way of doing things and other people go, hey, that's interesting, I'm going to start doing that too, and then it becomes a thing. So how do you say, let's use the 360 video thing just as a contextual yeah. example. How do you think about going, okay, you know what I'm going to start doing? I'm going to start having a 360 video aspect of clipping and and talk about how the way 360 video can be used and thought about and so if you're in an opportunity shooting somewhere 360 video think about stock footage because the applications within AAR or VR could be possible and people doing VR will think hey there's actually starting to be 360 uh, stock footage available I'm going to start thinking about in the way that I'm designing but someone has to it may not just ha- fall together organically. Someone has to carve out a space and be willing to be patient for that space to be filled in. Do you see yourself in that kind of, does that role need to exist of someone, you know, being the first one carving out that path consciously? So remember with stock footage, specifically for stock footage, somebody is walking out their door with camera and they're shooting something, whether that's on a DSLR, cinema camera, 360 or you know their iphone they're going out to shoot something and um we give we give our contributors ideas of what to shoot topics we give them metrics like if you're shooting 4k versus hd is it editorial versus commercial almost like a fund manager on 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 wall street that stock market yeah we give them metrics so they can see where they're like overweighted and underweighted and it all goes towards you know just playing the numbers so we never say you should shoot this because it will sell. We say you should shoot this because then you'll have more footage and your chances increase that you will sell. So it's kind of hard for me to say um, right now you should, you know, to, to shoot 360 because the demand is so low right now. But if that were to increase, then we would filter that back. So I see for something like that that's really cutting edge innovation, I see that my job is to really listen to what the market is saying. You know, be conscious of how people are shooting, but but listen to what the market is because that's really that's really what's driving it. 
from that note, um, what is the current market and are you starting to get any sense of sea changes at all? Is there anything coming that, or, or at least are you feeling like it's either a soft market that's changing or is it pretty much like, you know, exactly what to do every day? Well, a little history of the stock footage market. I think you, you kind of need to start with, um, stills or actually go back even further. There's always been stock footage for films, early films, TV documentaries. And then Ken Burns kind of <clears throat> just took Ken the photograph Burns, and did a ton was, with it. Yeah, <laughs> did the Ken Burns effect, coincidentally named after him. I don't know that happened, but... <laughs> yeah, coincidence. Um, so the, the, the market for stock footage has been around for 100 years. But really when we're talking about stock footage now, you have to look back about 20 years. Um, internet you know, and, and digital. And it started with stills because it was easier to scan and digitize stills and then upload them and have, and actually store them online. And then, you know, um, internet speeds increased and storage prices came down and that created the opportunity to be able to start putting video up because it didn't make sense before they just couldn't handle it. It was too, too expensive. And so all these come, most of these companies in the stock footage market, most of these distributors started as stills companies. And when you look on the different sites, you see there are a billion stills there. Mm -hmm. And the history of that is that, um, they were all competing against each other and it was a race to the bottom as far as, um, price. So the price is just cratered and these producers, of stock um stock stills photographs were miserable because it's like i went through you know from selling a hundred bucks a still to 10 cents so as these stock footage distributors um transitioned to expanding their business to include video they were really 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 conscious of defending prices mm -hmm. and there's a group called axel um the association of commercial stock footage stock image licensors um who've done studies every four years for the past i think maybe it's 12 years now and that's one of the questions they ask these distributors um you know what's your top concern four years ago it was prices defending prices and they were really smart about it they were diversifying sub brands different models i mean again this is why the distributors this is what they're experts in mm -hmm. selling the footage and it was a top priority for them to defend prices. And four years later, the, the latest report came out and the prices have been flat, which is really, really good news. Yeah. Right. But you also see on these sites, you know, how many, how many actual video clips do they have? Well, they have a billion stills, but you know, video clips, maybe, you know, five or six million, something like that. So there's a huge opportunity for growth because demand keeps going up and up and mm -hmm. up. Um, one of the examples I like for demand was that was just somebody as a spoof recreated the fire Island <laughs> videos, uh, using all stills. Um, I can't remember exactly. Shutterstock. Shutterstock. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to showcase that oh, it was entirely fire, the fire festival. Fest. Yeah. The fire yeah. festival. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. I think it was something for like 200 bucks. They could have done the entire I think thing. It was, yep. stock, right? it was, it yeah. was. That was great. Yeah. I love that. What a, what the a great timing idea. was great as well, just as, <laughs> just as <it laughs> the two documentaries that, came out. Yeah. <laughs> it was so it was so entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, then there have been music videos where people use just, you know, just stock footage as kind of a gimmick, but it's not, you know, not so much of a gimmick anymore. Are you finding um, landscapes and things like that are performing better than images of people? Or is, is there any like subtrend inside of it right now? Or is it just, I mean, it's, it's all driven by. It's all over the place. Yeah. The, you know, I get this thing when I um, speak at conferences and stuff like that. I've got this, you know, minute reel of all these different stock footage clips. And I ask, okay, what do they all, all have in common? And the answer is like, they don't have anything in common except their stock footage and they sell different styles, different cameras, different locations, um, editorial, commercial resolutions. I mean, it's all over the place. That's why, I mean, you know, again, that's why we play the numbers, mm -hmm. um, quantity, quality, and variety. But, um, you know, we do see growing demand for released content, meaning content that's shot with the model or property release, which is suggesting that, um, you know, the agencies, marketing agencies, people are, have a budget for this content um, and want to use it for commercial purposes. The demand is growing and growing and growing. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very good sign because we're actually making it easier for people to get releases Right yeah. now, it's a, I'm just talking about the friction points before and being kind of obsessed with them. But one friction point is um, the ability to get a release signed and either you have a piece of paper or you have an app, but then what do you do with it? And it's just enough steps and the awkwardness of asking some for somebody, it's, it's, we're trying to really lower that to um, just making it very easy to do. Have you ever thought about, um, there are certain buildings that, Everyone photographs, everyone shoots. Have you ever thought about getting blanket releases for your platform that you can pass on to anyone uploading stock footage where you basically say, if you're shooting these scenes, this area, um, you're covered? I mean, that's a good idea. We're, you know, we're not doing that right now, but we are thinking of, we're always thinking of ways of how we can make it easier for our contributors to um, shoot more footage and shoot, of course, release footage, not mandatory, but gives them more options and um, how, how we can support them. I, I think that's a good idea. And even creating, you know, the example of, you know, having a party with actors in a yeah. location and inviting our top shooters to come in, yeah. shoot the hell out of it. Yeah. And they're, it's all released. So we are trying to help them in, in, in a few different ways. That's an interesting idea of um, you could almost partner with certain venues, partner with certain types of things to layer on top and maybe drive um, basically like, okay, this music festival will be going on. It's a secondary monetization stream for them. Um, split revenue between them and, and the shooters that you put on site. Uh, definitely. Yeah. And it gets, you know, the, the rules are fairly complex um, and they vary country to country. Um, you know, one example is, stock footage or sorry the um, um the eiffel tower mm -hmm. during the day anybody can shoot it you can use it for whatever you want yeah so, um eiffel tower at night um you need a release for that yeah and why protected. is that yeah why is that because the person who did the lighting installation in the early yeah. 80s they own the rights to that yeah so you know there's and that's where you know our expertise really pays off because there are a lot of little things like that. And we, again, we train our contributors, we give feedback so they get better and better at that. But our, our curators who are the editors and then also the taggers, they're trained to recognize that immediately. 
That's an, um, we used to run an art gallery that was online and we ran into this with buildings where up before 1970 something, you can shoot anything. And after that, um, it's protected by the architect. Mm-hmm. And, um, when you're shooting in newer neighborhoods, knowing that, yeah. it, um, it was amazing that first off, there was no education on it out there that, um, that was readily available. So just getting people to even understand that took a little bit, yeah. um, but then we always ran into issues like um, if you're shooting and there's graffiti, was that commissioned piece? Was sure. that um, is it illegal? Does it even matter? Yeah. The copyright law isn't exactly clear on that. Tattoos, um, tattoos, if yeah. You, even if it's just hands or arms, yeah. tattoo, it's work of yeah. art. Yeah, who owns it? Yeah, yeah. so it gets yeah. fairly complex. And wouldn't wouldn't you as a shooter want to want to know more about that and have a little more confidence when you're shooting? Yeah, you know. But the the thing for clipping contributors, presumably, is that the, the licensing is in the hands of the distributors who really are the experts and can weigh up that risk. Yeah. Um, and they're the ones dealing with the clients who are either willing to take the risk or not take the risk and then make a decision. So it seems like the clipping contributors have a little bit more liberty. They mm-hmm. should know and should want to know, but they, they have liberty to be more creative with it, I think, than Definitely. if they're just going out to be on a certain brief with a certain assignment in mind. Yeah, exactly. We don't want to stress them out. And yeah. Yeah, and even with kind of the best practices rule, go for the shot. Yeah. You know, it doesn't take us time to look at stuff and just say we're not going to use it. We blaze through this stuff very quickly. We make very quick decisions. So we want them to take chances. Um, and certainly... You know, the distributors, um, ultimately, they're the ones who are dealing with the buyers, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's some of the feedback we've gotten from the distributors, that they like um, working with Clipin because we know what we're doing. So we're serving up this footage to them that's already categorized in ways that that's easier for them to, you know, put on their sites and sell. Do you do anything with the speed of the news cycle as well, or are you out of that business? Because I know that something like Getty will play with that. <laughs> Breaking, you know, essentially like breaking news, yeah. like in the hurricane or the tropical storm hurricane that was just down in Louisiana. Yeah. Um, we have, I don't know, we think we got like 10 packages over the weekend mm-hmm. of that. Um, okay. Yeah. How do you look at that? Or do you? Um, in terms of, let's call it tragedy or disaster related stock footage mm-hmm. and the ethics of selling that footage or when something happens profiting on a disaster because that has a larger call for footage about something that's going to be used for, um, I mean, I even think about like, like, do you have stock footage of nine 11, for example, mm-hmm. that, that you license and, and how do you feel about that? For I'll just use that as an example. We don't have to focus on that. I mean, think of it this way. Um, our contributors in that respect are witnesses to history. Mm -hmm. It's, and wouldn't you want to have that footage from as many angles as possible? And, you know, we're talking editorial footage here, right? It's very, it's very specific. Um, yeah, they say the rule in news is F 11 and be there. And, um, it's, yeah. it's a lot different when it's editorial and, and you're thinking yeah. about and storytelling. We're, we're very much, you know, clipping is a pass through of whatever the rules, you know, contracts of the distributors themselves. Sure. Right. 
So the distributors are all pretty much, you know, the same on this. If it's, you know, we're not selling uh, snuff films, right? You yeah, know, fair enough. Yeah. There's um, pornography, actual pornography, um, and actual, you know, uh, graphic violence that they will not accept. Um, so, you know, in that respect, we're, we're just kind of following the rules of, of what can be distributed anyway. But I mean, I, I do think, you know, one of the joys of Clipman is seeing the, seeing the world through other people's eyes. Um, but it's also, you know, one of our missions being able to share that with the world. Um, in terms of the future and the way content is sold, do you think, um, do you think it's evolving or is there room in the world for a totally new way of selling content, licensing content? It seems like there's, there's a handful of players who do it well. They do it globally. They do it successfully. But as we see this market grow and prices maybe in the future start degrading, how, how else do you recreate this forum for getting content from A to B and it still being a profitable process yeah i think um i mean the distributors themselves are constantly battling each other you know get everybody knows getty images and they're probably you know the first and the biggest um and they had their model and then shutterstock came along and said okay we have a slightly different model or you know rights rights ready model and it's set price and you can download it and you can use it for whatever you want right um and then um, I think Pond Five came along with you know kind of their eBay model, and it's like the contributor prices sets the price, and then it's kind of a marketplace. And then Storyblocks, formerly called Videoblocks, said, "No, we're an all-you-can-eat buffet. We're like the Netflix mm-hmm. model, you know." And then uh, you know Pond Five was like, "We like the all-you-can-eat buffet. That might be working." And then you know, and they're yeah. all kind of looking at what. The other ones are doing, seeing what's working, coming up with new ideas. So it's constantly evolving. And um, I think it's better. I think the technology of what's possible, you know, online and to a certain extent, probably leveraging AI in ways that aren't obvious, not AI telling us what's in the video, Mm -hmm. but in other ways, I think that will um, present opportunities for innovation um, where we can um, we can present the footage in a way to to the end user, or they can find it in a way that's different, and that's probably where yeah. we'll start seeing opportunities. Yeah. Are are you seeing? And this may, this could be possibly a um, an uninformed question, but are you seeing potential applications for blockchain in what you're doing? including being able to somehow encode sourcing of video that's traceable. Yeah. So I was just, it's funny. I was just talking to someone the other day and they were talking about blockchain and I, I don't know enough about it. Um, so, but it's, you know, we've been looking at AI just to improve our own um, platform for a while. And I'm sure that's something that we'll look into more. I'm seeing blockchain in the music space for, um, for sampling so how do you properly attribute every sample that you pull right mm-hmm. on a music yeah. video or, or i think for rights management absolutely yeah. and probably on the distributors are probably looking at, into that more than we are at this point 
because um, our source metadata gets you know sent to them. So depends on how they track yeah. it. Really, they can always track it back to us. We can always track it back to yeah. the content owner on our end. Mm-hmm. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to talk a little less stock footage, a little more Mick uh-huh. as we get into uh, just a handful of human questions right after this. If you like funny people talking, I think maybe you should check us out. That's Elsie, the producer for Funny People Talking. I'm Mark Rako. I'm one of the hosts. And also with me is... Danielle, I'm one of the other hosts. And you know what, Elsie? I actually think you're a funny person. And on the show, you do talk. So it really lives up to its name. So if you love great interviews that have a lot of heart, improv comedy, and just a really fun discussion, you should check out the podcast Funny People Talking on Mouth Media Network and wherever the best podcasts are found. Because I think this is one of the best podcasts, don't you, Elsie? Well, duh. What about you, Danielle? Well, duh. And what about you, all the listeners out there? So you must believe all these people. We don't lie at all, but we are funny. Listen to Funny People Talking every Monday and really anytime. It's a podcast. Yeah, and we don't lie. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at contentisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Solitaire till I pull my hair Brother, now I've been listening to your book till my ashtray is full and the smoke starts dancing on the windowsill. I had my fun and now I've had my fill Brother, a fire at one end and a fool at the other. That was another uh, very cool tune by Mick Reed. Great job, Mick. Uh, thank you. Mick, as we uh, wind up our time together, um, it might be great to just get to know you a little bit more deeply. So um, I-, I like to just lead it off with a completely random, unplanned question. Truly, I have no idea actually what I'm about to ask until it comes out of my mouth. Yeah. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I'm hiding behind the couch. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to know what moves you with content. So when you see a movie or you look at a video game or you see a commercial or you watch a TV show or you watch something online or, or whatever it may be, as someone who's sat in a number of chairs – uh, in in content creation and purchasing uh, and licensing and everything like that, what what connects with you and makes you go, oh my god, that's just special. And you can't say the opening scene from Up. <laughs> 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 Hashtag random. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I've been so I've been on set. I know how movies are made. Um, I even know, you know, on food commercials that it's not, you know, it's glue and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, I've been in the edit room, so I know music and voiceover. I know there's been color correct. I know they've, 
you know, made things disappear. I know animation, claymation. Like, you know, I, I know so how So basically Mick sucked, just sucked all the magic out of yeah, it. Yeah, quite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to bring the magic back. Yeah, okay, okay. Magic, I'm taking it away just to bring it back. Um, so, but when I'm, you know, when I'm watching something, I'm just there with everybody else. You know, I'm I'm sucked in. And that's, you know, when I watch a movie or something like that, um, or even, you know, a documentary. I'm just there along for the ride. That's what, that's what I want, you know, when I'm consuming media, even a commercial, like whatever I'm, I'm a, along for the ride and it is an emotional, um, experience and whoever's doing their job, hopefully they're doing their job right, that they're making an emotional connection with me. And when I'm taking, taken out of that, it's one of two reasons. One, they just screwed something up. They just did a terrible, terrible job. And now I'm focused on something and they took me out of that. Again, documentary or fiction, uh -huh. whatever. They blew it. And now I'm looking at it as like a critic. And anybody can do that. You know, anybody. Starbucks cup in uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I missed that. I missed that. And by the time I went back to look for it, it was already gone. So, um, but so that could be one. They, they blew it. They didn't do their job and they took me out of it. But the other one is if they did something so amazing and my reaction is, oh my God, what just happened? Then that's okay too, because it's an emotional In response. other words, you, you're aware that's a special effect or it's CGI or something, but you, but you, but, but you're so astonished that yeah. it's been so, it was so seamlessly accomplished and beautiful yeah. that you're marveling at the production of it. It's, you know what it is? It's, you know, it's a head and the heart. It's the heart first. Uh -huh. So I feel, uh, it just feel like, wow, what just happened? That blew me away. It could be a transition. It could be a title. It could be, yeah. you know, a steady cam shot. It was, you know, there's so many different, you know, I mentioned, you know, hyperlapse. The first time I saw a hyperlapse, I was like, what the hell did it? This is amazing. So it was, it's like, wow. You know, I, and, and then they've succeeded. You know, they've really succeeded. They've really impacted me. And then, you know, of course, it's what do they do with that at that point? Are they sure. teaching me something? Am I going to now click on it and buy something or whatever? What do you do with that? Um, but then it's only after the fact, if I have a chance to watch it again, I will and see, okay, and I'll do it frame by frame and yeah. I'll dissect it and I'll figure out and maybe I'll rip it off. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's how we learn from each other, right? Um, but it, the, that first reaction is I'm just sitting there with everybody else and, and I'm along for the ride. Entertain me. I just saw a production of Beetlejuice at Broadway, which is not a piece of content per se, I guess, arguably. But I, I noticed that I forgot I was watching a play, uh, watching musical. <laughs> I like, oh, wow. I mean, obviously, I intellectually understood yeah. I was watching fiction, yeah. but I'm saying I suddenly at some point remembered I was in a theater and not watching these people do this. And I was impressed that they had drawn me in so successfully by just non-stop involving me there was no moment where they said oh he, he, it was really impressive and it made me think of all the times like you make that in which i've been drawn into a movie or a tv show or a commercial and you forget that these are actors or mm -hmm. they're it's animation or i mean I, when i first saw not to believe the point but i remember the first time when jurassic park the first film came out mm -hmm. and those dinosaurs came up which now look still impressive but relatively crude a little fuzzy, a little fuzzy. <laughs> yeah but but i remember that moment 
And I remember being yeah. in the theater saying, there's dinosaurs on the screen. Mm. I knew they were fake, but my brain still couldn't, ra- still believed it yeah. I- I- mm-hmm. in a way. And it was so, it was emotional. I remember yeah. getting emotional seeing stupid animations. So. And of course, it was the story that drove it, right? Yes. It was the, mm-hmm. the reaction yeah. of the actors. It was to the it, right? setup. It was climbing over the hill, Sam yeah, yeah, Neil, yeah. climbing over the hill, Taking his, his reaction, yeah. his <laughs> swelling music, like yeah, yeah, all yeah. that stuff. And then boom, you saw that shot. And it That's was like, it. Wow. That's it. So there's yeah. a lot of things going That's on. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So if Ted Hope was your early influence, who would you say has dominated the last five to ten years? As as a role model? As a role model, as a, as a an artist, a mentor. Who who's that figure that in ten years' time you'll look back and go, ah, it was so and so that impacted well, that period? You know, I I think the the um the like the YouTubers um who are just going out there completely fearless, um, hacking the gear. Like I never thought of like hacking a camera before. No way. You buy it and that's it. But like just seeing how they're pushing the envelope and they're completely fearless and and breaking down, you know, um all those barriers to to getting the shot. Um, I'm inspired by them. And I think when I go out and shoot now, I have been influenced not only in how I shoot, but what I'm willing to do. You know. It's interesting. I, I think back to photographers that just like the the places they're willing to go and the physical things that they had to do to get the shots um, was often. So I, I had a professor who did time lapse. Um, There's all these old abandoned buildings in the area we went to school. And so he'd go in with a medium format camera or a large format camera, set it up and take a 12 to 24 hour still um, with colored film. And then he'd go and hide and then come back when it was over. Cause of course you're not allowed in there. So you get photographs where a night security guy would come through and you'd, you get a flash of light across and it would like cut where the cam or the flashlight beam was, but you'd also get these colors that you would never know were there from the old industrial waste rippage and stuff like that, oh, where wow, like yeah. blues and greens and huh. reds that were just like, absolutely stunning that he knew were there and he knew that a 12 hour shot would like pull out. Um, but the willingness to like risk, I mean, you shouldn't be going into those zones probably. (laughs) (laughs) Let alone hanging out the whole night. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Just that what he's doing is, um, you know, he figured out or maybe it was trial and error. You know, I, I bet once you've seen one of those, it's their photographs, right? Yeah, Yeah. Once you've seen one of those photographs, you look at those spaces differently, right? Yeah. Um, you know, another example, which is, you know, kind of less subtle is time-lapse. Yeah. You know, when I look at clouds now, you know, it's a typical, most obvious thing in time-lapse, you see the clouds moving fast, but I don't look at clouds the same way. I, cause I know I'm, I'm in some sort of slow motion state yeah. as opposed to what's actually happening. You've so I think at it, clouds I, from both sides now. <laughs> up and down. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, and it I is think interesting. We, we, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it is interesting. We live in life, which at one point everything seemed exciting, and now we live in a world in which we observe and we see raw materials 
for but and we know what they can become because of our mm -hmm. our manipulation through media yeah and i think it's through you know the manipulation of media that we you know we can see the world in a different way maybe get a better understanding of the world but also ask more questions and the search continues so last random question in um when you were young when you were a kid what's what's the first moment or topic or something like that that you remember just blowing you away well we used to have this little um i don't even know how to describe it it was a it was something that you put a, a super 8 reel of film in mm -hmm. you played it back and the actual screen so it was like a little projection thing yeah but it was I don't know, as big as a book basically and the screen was maybe like one inch by one inch it was all distorted yeah because so like it's magnifying glass right and there must have been light behind you know the film shooting it through and just seeing that the little with all the flickers and everything else and you know months after it'd been shot right yeah because <laughs> you have to actually mail it someplace and that i loved that as a kid when i was a kid i was just obsessed with looking at this thing mm -hmm. learned how to thread it really quickly and you know years later probably when i was maybe eight or nine i was at a birthday party for my best friend at the time and this was a family who had everything, like the latest everything. The first time I saw a computer, it was Apple, whatever that was <laughs> then. And and they said, oh, someone's got a video camera. And I, well, I don't know, what video camera? What? Yeah. And they'd shot the birthday party. And it was back when people had like camcorders and stuff. They'd shoot birthday parties. And then you'd sit down and they watch the full hour of the birthday party. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I never found that enjoyable. <laughs> I never got that part. Yeah, didn't we just do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never got that. But everyone would be, maybe that's when the adults took the nap. I, I don't know. But I remember someone describing to me that that was going to happen and just not believing it. Yeah. I yeah. just didn't, you know, I just didn't believe that that was possible. I'd never seen it before. How is that possible? So. Yeah. Well, isn't so much of the technological advances we have because people have imagined it and then decide it's not most things that we have that are innovation is because we decided we wanted to try to make it. It wasn't because we stumbled across it. Sometimes we stumble across yeah. it and it happens. But, and I think about the number of things in science fiction that we imagine because we saw it as plausibly possible in the future and probably where we'll get to. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, as we often talk about on a variety of our shows on this network, Minority Report and um, yeah, yeah, Tom yeah. Cruise's character the running screen. through the mall with the screen saying they know yeah. he needs more genes or whatever. And guess what? How close are we to that being real right now? So freaking close to that being the reality we live it's, in. Yeah. We kind of are there, except like not quite that version, but we're so close. And and we can make that happen. It's really just a matter of that being plausibly affordable for merchants at this point, but probably technologically that's more yeah, all or the pieces less. Are there. The it's pieces happening. are there. So it's just a matter of time mm -hmm. yeah. till that becomes reality. Mm -hmm. So um because we can dream it. If we dream it, yeah. we can do it as uh, Henry Ford said, you know? Yeah, and there's a, you know, 
there's a dark side to that. And I think the, you know, in the minority report, there are two things people reference. That's one of them. And I think that's a dark side to, you know, social and tracking everything. Because now when you're in the grocery store or something, your Bluetooth, you know, the, the cornflakes box sends you a message on your Bluetooth and it pops up and says, you know, so it's, it's kind of like, how can we prey on each other? How can we sell each other's stuff? I think that's a really dark side. The, um, <laughs> the, the other reference people make to the minority report, typically, you know, editors is, um, uh, you know, the, uh, this is the British actor, or Irish actor, the Colin, uh, Colin Firth. No, not Colin, Colin Firth. Um, Anyway, the other guy, I'm sorry, I'm not remembering his name, but he puts on the gloves and he's editing the video by, right. by waving his oh, hands right. around, yeah. right? So every editor dreams of being able to put on the gloves and just oh. move their hands around and do that. Yeah. And we're a couple steps away, but they yeah. haven't figured that one out yet. We'll so, see it in our lifetime. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Coming, so. uh, any final thoughts as you uh, reflect on our conversation, Mick, or anything? just piece of wisdom that you'd like from through your experience to, you know, here's this forum here to, to share. Well, we've been talking about my favorite subject, which is content mm -hmm. <laughs> and video. Um, you know, I just like to say if, um, you know, we're, we're always learning, we're always looking for, um, a new way to see things and there are different ways of getting there. So I'm constantly inspired, you know, every single day, by by the content creators that we're dealing with um and hopefully you know hopefully serving and giving them an opportunity you know our motto at clippin is shoot what you love we'll do all the rest and go. that's something we do across the board and that kind of centers me on what our mission is shoot what you love we'll do all the rest and um so if any if anybody out there wants to uh you know drop us a line you know go on um clippin.com c-l-i-p-p-n Dot com or feel free to email me directly. I'd love to hear from you. Mick, M-I-C-K, at clippin.com. Fantastic. Okay, that's it for this episode of Content is Your Business. Thanks so much to Natasha and Rob for joining. Until next time, I'm Mark Rico. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Content is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at contentisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.